Thank you for checking out the messages of New Grace. We are a group of believers in Roanoke, Virginia, who are dedicated to loving God, loving others, and serving others. We hope that today's message is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, get your Bibles open to the book of 2 Kings, chapter number 4. 2 Kings, chapter number 4. How many of y'all have ever heard of a, uh, a company called Facebook. Anybody ever heard of, of that little small startup? Uh, they used to be called the Facebook, but now they're just Facebook. And, and in 2006, Facebook was just two years old. It, it mostly consisted of college students in the Boston area who were using this to connect with each other. Uh, at this time, Yahoo offered Mark Zuckerberg and his investors one billion dollars to buy the company. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg personally would have walked away with 250 million dollars at 22 years of age. He turned it down. A lot of people saw that as an excuse to say that he was too young and too experienced to be a CEO of a major company who would, I mean, who in their right mind at 22 years old turns down $250 million, but he turned it down. Today, Facebook is worth $772 billion. And Zuckerberg is one of the wealthiest people in the world with a personal net worth of $98 billion. And he's 36 years old. Kind of makes you sick, doesn't it? He's a multi-billionaire at 36. He, he could have walked away at age 22 with $250 million, but he would have missed something greater. Now, we would have been better off because Yahoo, as has been their, their, their kind of modus operandi, would have probably ruined Facebook and we wouldn't have it today, which would be a good thing in my opinion but Zuckerberg would have been a lot worse off. Now, we may not realize it, but we face these kind of decisions uh, all the time. Now, granted, not deciding between hundreds of millions and hundreds of billions, but we still make decisions that can impact our life in ways that we don't even realize. Uh, God offers something greater to us as his children, but usually we miss it because it takes faith, it takes vision, it takes patience, and it takes something that most of us lack, delayed gratification. Most people will never achieve the greater things that God has for them and their life, and their life down here will only count for what is done down here. Now, our life here on this earth, no matter, no matter how long it is or how influential it is, it is only a drop in the bucket compared to what we can do for eternity. So this morning, as we continue looking at the life of Elisha, we're going to see a story from his life that shows us how we can, we can be prepared. We can set our lives up in such a way that we are prepared for the greater things that God has for us. Now, we all want a blessing from God. We all want God to bless us and use us in an incredible way, 
but not enough of us set ourselves and set our lives up in such a way that we are prepared to receive that blessing if God decides to give it to us. So get your Bibles open to 2 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse number 8. <clears throat> the Bible says, And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shushem, where there was a great woman, and she constrained him with bread, as, as, as she, and, he, and so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. Now, whenever we hear about a great woman, a lot of different things come to our minds. Maybe, maybe you think about your mom or your grandmother who was a great woman and she loved everybody and was kind to everybody and everybody just kind of, just kind of loved them and they were, just, they were wonderful to everyone. Maybe you think of women who, women who changed history like uh, Marie Curie or Florence Nightingale or Rosa Parks. Maybe you think of women in the Bible like Ruth or Esther or Mary. But this word here that we, we see, he calls her a great woman, is the Hebrew word Gadol, and it means great in every way, powerful, influential, and important. This woman that Elisha meets on his journeys, and she calls him into her house, and every time he passes by, she says, hey, come on in and, and have a meal with us, and let me feed you, and let me take care of you. This woman was an influential powerful person in the community. She was wealthy. She was well-respected. She had power. She had authority. And as Elisha passes by, she urges him to come in and have a meal with her and her husband. She welcomes him into her home. Let's keep reading verse number nine. <clears throat> and she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God, which passes by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick, and it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. Now this is where we kind of get our idea of a prophet's chamber, where we as a church or somebody personally, they set up a room for a traveling missionary or uh, an evangelist, someone who when they're passing through, they have a place to rest and maybe get something to eat and just kind of refresh themselves. But this woman, she says, when this man comes through, I, I, he, I know he's a man of God. There's something different about him. So I want to I make a special place that whenever he's in the area, he's, he's welcome here and available here. And her decision here set up the rest of the story that we're going to look at. But this woman and her story, they show us five things that we are to do to prepare our hearts to receive the blessing of God. And here's the first one. The first thing we need to do is to make room for God. We cannot dictate when and if God moves in our hearts and our lives, but we can make room for him in our lives that we are ready if he decides to move. Her decision to, to make this place for Elisha, it ends up being instrumental in what happens in the rest of the story. Now, her actions did not obligate God to move. What she did by setting aside this room and making a little place for the man of God, her doing that did not obligate God to move in her life, but it put her in a position that when God decided to move, she was ready. 
She was prepared. John 3, 8 says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. The moving of God is like the wind, Jesus says. We can't always tell where it's coming from. We don't always know when it's going to come. But when it comes, we know. We know when the wind moves. We may not be able to predict how it's going to come or where it's going to come or how it's going to blow. But when it blows, we know. We can't predict when God's going to move, but as a child of God, when God moves, we know that he's moving. You can't make the movement of God, the blessing of the Spirit, into a formula. There's no, hey, do this, 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 and God is obligated to move. Anyone that tells you to do that is lying to you, but you can put up your sail so that if God decides to move, you're ready to be, be blessed by him. We can be ready when he comes. That's why your walk with God every single day is so vitally important. As a child of God, it's vitally important that you not just read the Bible to get through your devotions, but you study the scriptures. You memorize the word of God. You meditate on the Bible. You have a prayer life with God. Because look, it may be years before God decides to move in your life, but if you set your life up and you make room for God every single day, when God does decide to move, those lessons you learn by studying the Bible, those verses you memorize, burst forth, and God is able to use you in an incredible way. Why? Be because you checked off the, the right things on the list and you, you figured out the cheat code to get God to move? No. But because you put yourself in a position that when and if God decided to move, you were ready. You put your sail up for when the wind was ready to blow. This woman made room in her life with something God had blessed her with in case God decided to move. She had the room, she had the space, she had the resources. So she just took something God had given her and used it to, to be a blessing to someone and use it for God in case God decided to move. So where do you need God to move in your life? Maybe it's an act of obedience that you need to pursue. Maybe it's a sin that God's laid on your heart that you need to confess and repent and get away from. Maybe it's a, a sacrifice that you need to give for the kingdom of God. Maybe it's some service that God wants you to do for his glory. Maybe it's some talent or some possession that God has given you that you've only used for yourself, but God wants to bless you in that area. Offer to God and make room for him to move. Maybe it's sacrificing some of your time to disciple someone else and help build the kingdom of God. You know, we wonder why God isn't moving in our lives and it's, it's because we never give him the opportunity. We never put the sail up. But she did. She made room for God. Second thing we need to do to prepare our hearts to receive the movement of God, the blessing of God, is number two, realize your weaknesses. Realize your weaknesses. Look at verse number 11. And it fell on a day that he came thither, and he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. 
what is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken? Uh, wouldest thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. So Elijah, he's there one day and he, he comes into this little prophet's chamber and he's relaxed and he goes, you know what, Gehazi, this woman has been, has been so good to us. She's blessed us so much. Let's, let's ask her what we can do for her. So he calls her in and he goes, hey, you've been so kind to us. You've blessed us so much. Is there, is there anything that we can do for you? Maybe we can put in a good word for the king or maybe we can put a good word into the captain for you. But she says, I have no needs. Remember, she's, she's great. She's Gehazi. She's wealthy. She's influential. She's powerful. She doesn't need anything. You ever have someone in your life that you have trouble buying something for them, a present, because they have everything? It's like, what do you get someone who has everything or who doesn't want anything? It's hard to shop for them. So this is what this woman is. She, she doesn't need anything. She doesn't want anything. Everything she has is taken care of. She has no needs. Look at verse 14. And he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, fairly, she hath no child, and her husband is old. She had one need, but she never talked about it. She never mentioned it. She never complained about it. She never asked about it, but she didn't have a child. She was childless. She had no son. And in this culture, sons were everything. They took care of you when you got old. They took care of the farm and they received the inheritance and maintained the property for you when you got old. And so in this time, a life without a child, especially a son, was considered to be incomplete. And this woman was old. And she had no children. And her husband is old. She had no hope. She's never complained about it. She's never asked about it. She seems content with what God has put on her life. But look what Elisha does in verse 15. And he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. And he said, about this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thy handmaid. So Elisha calls her and he goes, look, I know you don't need anything. You've not asked for anything, but you know what? I want to be a blessing to you and God wants to be a blessing to you. So this time next year, you are going to have a child. And she says, don't tease me. I didn't ask for this. I was fine. So look, don't, don't get my hopes up. Don't offer me something I didn't, that you can't come through with. Now this is a sensitive topic. And if you've ever struggled with infertility, you understand that this is a sensitive topic. She had given up her dream of a son. Now, Elisha is telling her that she will have one that she never asked for. God was moving in her life to bless her because she was ready for God to move. Then look at verse number 17. And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. Just like Elisha said, she has a child. She has a son. Everything seems great. God is blessing her. But then look what happens. Verse 18. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father, with his father to the reapers, 
And he said to his father, my head, my head. And, his, and he said to a lad, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband and said, send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go unto him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. Then she saddled an ass and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. So she went and came up to the man of God, to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass, when the man of God saw her afar off, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with thy child? And she answered, It is well. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to her to thrust her away. And the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her. And the Lord hath hid it from me and hath not told me. Then she said, Did I not desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Don't deceive me? She'd been blessed with a son that she gave up any hope of ever having. And then he dies. She goes to Elisha, and telling everyone along the way, her husband says, What are you going to do when you get... She goes, it's, Everything's okay. It's well. Gehazi comes to her before she gets to Elisha and says, Hey, is everything okay with you? How's your husband? How's your son? How's everything going? And she says, It's well. Everything's okay. But it's not okay. Then she grabs Elisha and says, Did I ask you for a son? No, I didn't. In fact, I told you, don't tease me or get my hopes up. Now look what happened. I had a son, I loved him, and now he died. Why did you do this to me? Why did God do this to me? She's, she's heartbroken. And it's understandable why. She's been hurt by God. Something she never asked for has hurt her. Look at verse number 29. Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins and take my staff in thine hand and go thy way. If thou didn't meet any man, salute him not. If any man salute thee, answer him not again. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. So Elisha, I mean, he, he feels bad for her. He understands her heart and what's going on. So he gives his staff to a servant and says, Hey, you go lay the staff on his face and you, you do what needs to be done. Look at verse number 30. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. So this is kind of funny. Elisha tells the servant, says, hey, you go lay my staff on his face. And, and that, that should work. That, that should bring him back. But she's got a hold of Elisha. And she goes, oh, no. That's not how we're doing things. You're not sending your servant to do what you need to do. You are coming to do it. You're gonna, you made this mess. Now you're going to clean it up. I kind of like this woman and her, her zeal for what's going on, talking to Elijah this way. Look at verse 31. <clears throat> and Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. 
Wherefore he went in again to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. So they're, they're on their way, but Gehazi goes ahead and he runs ahead and puts a staff on and comes back to Elisha and says, I did it. It didn't work. Look at verse number 32. And when Elisha was coming to the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them, twain, and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the child, this is weird, and put his mouth upon his mouth, and his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands, and he stretched himself upon the child, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. And then he returned and walked in the house to and fro, and went up and stretched himself upon the child, and uh, stretched himself upon him, and the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Look, I did a lot of research, because everything in the Bible has meaning. You know what the significance of the kid sneezing seven times is? Nothing. He sneezed seven times, that's it. Yeah, allergies, I guess, I don't know. It, but, but I really dove into what does this mean, and I was frustrated when I found out nothing. But sometimes it's just a weird detail stuck in there. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she was come in unto him, he said, Take up thy son. And then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. Now, was her receiving a son from God in her old age with no hope, a blessing, and a miracle? Of course it was. But this is a greater miracle. And she would have never experienced it if she hadn't made room in her life for God to move. This woman had everything. She was great. But this miracle occurs in the one area where she's not great. The one area where she is poor and desperate. You ever notice how harsh God seems to be towards rich people? I mean, in Luke 153, he goes, He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. Then in Mark 10:25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Why does God hate rich people so much? Because wealth usually deceives you into feeling self-sufficient. Wealth makes you think that you can live independent of God. That was the first sin in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Feeling like they could live without God. Feeling like they did not need Him. People who are rich in possessions, they don't feel they need to depend on God with their future, so they're not concerned with obeying Him. They don't have to obey him with what they have now because they're taking care of in the future. They're not attentive to what God is saying now because as far as they can look into the future, they are fine and they don't need God to do anything. It's that feeling of independence that caused the first sin and it's that feeling of independence that keeps the rich man from seeing the kingdom of God. People rich in talent don't depend on God to work in and through them because they feel competent enough to do whatever they need to get done. They're not desperately dependent on God to make something happen or to make something work because they're okay doing it themselves. People who think they're rich in good works don't think they need God's mercy because they are good people. 
So they end up negotiating with God. God, I'm pretty good, so I'll do this for you, and then you owe me, you are obligated to me. They negotiate with God because they think they have something to negotiate with. Becoming a Christian means realizing that you have nothing to negotiate with God with, and you come to God because you have nowhere else to go. Richness always leads to a feeling of independence, but our sense of wealth is just an illusion. For this woman, she was rich in every area but one. She didn't have a child. She was poor and she was weak in that area. See, we, we tend to think we're rich enough to face the future, but God can take everything away in a second. Even if you end your life with everything that you wanted and everything you strove for, and you end your life with all the money you could ever ask for, and you die on earth with that, you can't take it with you to eternity. You think you're rich enough in good works to negotiate with God, but I, Isaiah says that on our very best day, every single one of us deserve hell. He said in Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all as an unclean thing, all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we do all fade away as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. On your best day, God says, you are a filthy, bloody, pus-filled, disease-ridden rag in front of God. Think you're rich professionally. You're competent. You, you can meet the needs of your life on your own, but you you never lay up treasure in heaven so you're poor and don't even realize it. See, God is full of grace. God is ready to help. God wants to move in our life, but our sense of richness keeps him from, from, keeps him from moving and keeps us from experiencing the richness of his grace and his mercy. It isn't your weakness that keeps you from, from being blessed by God. It's your strength that keeps you from seeing your need for the power of God. So sometimes God puts things in your life that you can't conquer, like he did this woman. The death of a child, the breakup of a marriage, a health scare, an addiction that you can't conquer. Failures are God's mercy on our life, showing us our need for Him. Remember we said in our last series, if dependence on God is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. God cannot and God will not move in areas that you think you're strong. Third thing we need to do to prepare our hearts to receive the blessing of God is be content and discontent. This woman here, she's a, a mixture of contentment and holy discontentment. She's childless, but she, she never complains about it. She never asks for anything. And then God bless her with a child. And when that son dies, she responds by saying, all is well. Again, in verse 26, when she gets to Gehazi and he says, hey, what's wrong? She says, all is well. But then she grabs Elisha and says, I'm not letting go of you until you make this right. That is gospel faith. That is world-changing faith. It is a mixture of contentment and holy discontentment. It is a sense that all is well with you because you have God 
but also that there's something more and you're not leaving God alone until he moves in your life. All is well in your soul, but all is not well in your world. You see people suffering. You see people in need of Jesus, and that's not okay. So you go to God, not because you're discontent in your soul, but because you're discontent with the moving of God in your life. You're not okay that there are people in this world who have never heard the gospel or have no access to the gospel. You're not okay that the name of God is mocked and ridiculed. It's not okay that your kids don't know Jesus or they don't walk with him. So you grab a hold of Jesus and say, I'm not letting go until you answer me. All is well with your soul, but all is not well in your world. Those two go hand in hand. It's only when you are content with Christ that you can be moved by the discontentment that comes from compassion. Otherwise, you're too focused on your, your own needs to be moved by the needs of the world. In Christ, you can give up all that you have because in Christ... You already have all that you need. Too many believers, though, were discontent in our soul and were unmoved by the needs of the world. We have a discontentment that comes from idolatry and a contentment with the world that comes from complacency. You know, one of my favorite hymns comes from this story and this woman saying, it is well. And I'm sure you can guess what it is. It is well with my soul. You know, we've all heard the story of this song. How Horatio Spatford was a Chicago businessman who was financially devastated in the Chicago fire of 1871. And so after everything had settled down, he decided to leave for England to help D.L. Moody on his evangelistic campaigns. And while he was still selling some things at home, he sent his wife and his daughters on ahead. And we know the story where as they're crossing the Atlantic on the way to England, their ship collides with another ship and that sinks. And his wife survives and escapes, but his daughters drowned. Spatford hears about the tragedy and immediately leaves to go to England to join his grieving wife. And along the way, the captain of the ship tells him that this is, the, this is the spot where the accident happened. This is the spot where your daughters drowned. So Spatford, he goes below deck and he, he wrote the, song, the words to the songs that so many of us love. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But not a lot of people know the rest of the story. He goes to England, he helps the D.L. Moody for a while, and, but while he's on this evangelist campaign, he, he hears about people in Jerusalem who are suffering because of war and turmoil. So he goes to the Middle East, he goes to Jerusalem, and he, he sets up a mission that helped hundreds of thousands of Muslim and Jewish people who were impacted by war. It wasn't a religious thing per se. They didn't come in and get preached to, but they came in and had their needs met. They got food, they got medicine, they got shelter. Hundreds of thousands of Jews and Muslims came to this mission and saw the love of Christ lived out. And because of their effort, thousands upon thousands of them accepted Christ as their Savior. Because one man who lost everything said, 
It's well with my soul, but it's not well in the world. And I've got to do something to help those people. Because he was content with Christ, he could be discontent with the world. In Christ, I can give up all that I have, because in Christ, I already have all that I need. It's that contentment in Christ and holy discontentment with the world and what's happening that makes room for God to move in your life. Here's the fourth thing we need to do to set our hearts up to be ready for God to move. Be persistent with God. This woman, she, she grabs a hold of Elisha and she refuses to let him go until something happens. Reminds you of a story from the New Testament. Jesus is walking through the city. He's got a crowd of people around him. And there's a, there's a woman in that city who's had an issue of blood for 12 years. She's gone to every doctor. She's gone to every religious person. She's had every prayer done. She's had her offering taken care of. She's done everything she can to have this problem fixed. And nothing's helped. She's been unclean for 12 years, unable to hug her children or, or touch her husband or have anything to do with people. She's an outcast with no hope whatsoever, but she says, if I can just get to Jesus, if I can just touch him, I know something will happen. So she pushes her way through the crowd. She forces her way there, and she, she grabs him of his garment. As soon as she does, she's healed. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? I, I felt the power leave. Now, he knew who touched him. He wasn't really asking. He knew what had happened. But she touched him, and his power left him. She was immediately healed. Now, this was risky. Jesus is a holy man. She's unclean. He could have had her stoned for touching him. But he doesn't do that. He stops and says, who touched me? I felt the power leave from me. But he looks at her when she comes forward and says, it was me. He looks at her and he calls her a name that she hasn't been called for 12 years. He calls her daughter. It's a term of love and acceptance. She hadn't been touched for 12 years and her persistence, her resolve to see God move, brought God's movement into her life. And it brought her into God's family. It's that persistence that allows God to move in your life when and if he chooses to move. It is saying, it's well with my soul, but it's not well in my life, and I need God to touch me, and I'm not moving until he answers me. I need you to work in my family. I need you to work in my community. I need you to work in my life. And I'm not letting anyone push me out of the way because this isn't okay. You know, Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable about what prayer is like. And he, he says there's an old woman, this old poor woman who someone's mistreated her. So she goes to the judge, but this judge, he's, he's a cranky, unjust judge. He doesn't care. She can't do anything for him. So she says, I've got this problem. I need you to fix it. And she's no good to him. She can't do anything for him. She does, so he says, I'm not going to help you. But day after day after day after day after day, this woman keeps coming to this judge and saying, I need you to do something. And finally, the judge does what she needs just because she's annoying him. And I've always wondered, that's a weird way to describe prayer. God's an old cranky judge, and we're a poor old woman, and he only does what we need him to do because we bug him. 
But Jesus wasn't comparing God to the old, cranky old judge. He was contrasting him. If a cranky, unjust, God, unjust judge will move because someone's persistent, how much more will God who loves us and cares for us and wants to move in our life move in our hearts? He loves you. He died for you. And he will answer to you. We are not coming to someone who's deaf or ignoring us. Keep asking God. Now, my question, and it's probably the same question that you have sometimes, is if it's God's will to do something, and it's God's will to move, and it's God's will to bless in a certain area, why do we got to ask him anyway? He's God. It's his will. He's going to do it. So why do we have to keep coming to him and asking him? And here's the theological answer. I don't know. I wish I did. I'll ask him when I get to heaven. I don't know. But I do know that according to Scripture, some things only come through persistence. You have to keep asking, God, here's what I need. I'm not leaving you until you answer me because it isn't something I need because it's well in my soul, but it's not well in the world. And they're broken and they need you. And God, I need a touch and I need a blessing and I need you to use me in a way, God. So what do you need from God? You have wandering children that need to come back to God. A broken marriage, you got friends in need of Jesus. What are we supposed to do? Keep asking. Persistence prepares our hearts to see God move. But here's the final thing we need to understand. To have our hearts ready to receive a blessing from God. Salvation is the ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing God has given to all of us is delivering us from death and the grave and dying for our sins and rising again to redeem us to God the Father. I'm sure you noticed this in this story, kind of the, the odd way that Elisha went about having this boy resurrected. And I don't know, I mean, I'm sure there was other ways to do this. He could, I don't know what, but he, he lays on top of this kid, this dead kid. Again, it's weird. He lays on top of him, eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, and just stretches over top of him. And it's, 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 it's weird, but... Imagine you're God, and you're looking down from heaven, and you see Elisha spread out over this boy. You don't see the boy. You see Elisha. That's how Elisha had covered him. So when God looked down from heaven, he didn't see a dead kid. He saw a live prophet. That's how God, that's how Jesus saved us. He united himself to us completely. So that when God looks down and he sees us as God's, as children of God, he doesn't see our sin and our death and our depravity. He sees Jesus. Jesus took death for us. He took on flesh. And he who knew no sin became sin for us so we could become the righteousness of God. He completely covered us so that when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sinfulness, he sees Christ's righteousness. If God did that for you, if he loves you that much, 
that we can trust that he cares about us and the things that are happening in our lives. You know, Romans 5, 8 says, for, we, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man someone even dare to die. But God commendeth, or God showed his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32, For he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he then not with him also freely give us all things? You know, if God's for us, who could be against us? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from his love. So if God conquered death when we were his enemy, there is no problem we face that is above his power. There's no addiction too strong. There's no life too broken. There's no sin too wicked. So regret too severe to keep God from us if we come to him. God conquered death and sin and the grave for you. And there's nothing that can happen down here that we heal, he will not work in our lives. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Is your health broken? God will raise you with a redeemed body one day. Did you lose a loved one? If they're a child of God, you will see them in eternity one day. Is your marriage or your family or your reputation destroyed? Remember what Paul said in Romans 8.18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. God's greatest blessing, God's greatest move in our lives happened when he died for our sins and rose again to redeem us to God the Father. This woman, she set her life up in a way that when and if God decided to move, her heart was ready to receive his blessing. She saw, because she allowed her life to be ready for this, she saw that God could not be defeated even in death. When we see God can't be defeated, we become confident in what we believe God has called us to do. So here's a question this morning. Do you need God to move? Make room for him in your heart. Look for him in your weaknesses. Trust what he's doing. Be content in him and discontent with your situation. Be persistent and realize that as a child of God, the greatest blessing you could ever ask for has already been given to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thanks so much for listening. Have a blessed day.